this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Despite the holiday, we have a brand new episode for you today. I sat down for a long and enjoyable chat with our friend Rob Sheffield, who, in addition to all the other stuff he does, is the author of Dreaming the Beatles, the love story of one band in the whole world. And we talked about the Beatles revolver track by track. The album just came out in a great remixed edition with a lot of unheard outtakes and thought it would be a fun Thanksgiving topic. Thanksgiving is Beatles time. Last year, it was the Get Back documentary. We went really deep on this one. Consider it a Thanksgiving present. I hope you enjoy it. So Rob, the last track by track we did was Midnight's by Tower Swift with Britney. <laughs> and now we're doing another track by track, another brand new album that the world can't stop talking about. The Beatles Revolver, not so new, but it's the latest in this series of remixes that Giles Martin and Sam O'Kell have done of the Beatles album. And for a few different reasons, I would say this is the most exciting of these Beatles remixes so far. First of all, this album was recorded on only four tracks. And thanks to the latest demixing technology invented by Peter Jackson's team. Uh, and they're, it's interesting because Abbey Road has their own demixing technology, but this apparently is better. They were able to uh, break down the tracks using artificial intelligence to their component parts and essentially make it a much more than four-track recording and mix it in detailed ways that were not possible when the original album came out. And the other reason why this is a particularly significant one is the Revolver stereo mix that was out there in the world before was pretty weird. <laughs> it was notably weird. <laughs> it was almost unbearable to listen to in headphones. You had the classic things of almost everything in the right channel or whatever, and the, or the vocals all by themselves. Like it, it was an unusual, headachey headphones experience. One of the greatest albums of all time was not out in a version that you could comfortably listen to in headphones, <laughs> which is a very peculiar situation. The mono mix is great, always has been great, but it was only available on this obscure and very expensive box set if you wanted it on in digital form. So now this releases both the original mono mix, which happens to be spectacular, and these new mixes, and a bunch of really interesting outtakes of the songs. And Rob, you first heard this like months ago, right? Yeah, first heard it... Uh in July at Abbey Road. And one of the amazing things, nobody ever said that Revolver was a muffled sounding record. It's always been a spectacular listening experience. But of course, the technical limitations of it on the four track technology of the time, very well known. So for instance, the first track on the album is Taxman. So the original four-track recording, it has bass, drums, rhythm, guitar, all on one track. And then like the guitar on another track, and then two tracks devoted to vocals. 
But it's amazing to think that the whole rhythm section and the rhythm guitar are all on one track. And to show the demixing technology that was developed by Peter Jackson's team, the world got to hear the results in full detail in the Get Back documentary this time last year, when it was Beatles Thanksgiving last year. And it was spectacular because you had things like, okay, we put a mic in a flower pot in the middle of a very crowded cafeteria where there's a bunch of people talking at the same time. But due to this technology, they were able to isolate John and Paul's voices and actually hear what they were saying. This recording had existed. It was something that, you know, nobody had even claimed that they had deciphered any of it. And so it was completely new use of this technology to find this stuff. And they applied that to the instrumentation on Revolver. So for instance, I mentioned that all the instruments being on one track to demonstrate the difference with Taxman is Giles played me the, the original track with all the instruments on it and then played all the individual drums on Ringo's drum kit. So you can hear each drum got its own, thanks to this demixing technology, got isolated. So you can hear Ringo's kick, Ringo's hi-hat, every individual piece of his drum kit has its own track. And so you could just hear so much more of what they were playing in the room that day. And it's key to mention, as always, nothing was added and nothing was enhanced. Nothing was fiddled with. We can just hear more of what the four boys played in the room that day. And we're not hearing anything that they didn't put there. But it's just astounding to hear songs that never sounded muffled, never sounded restrained. We're just hearing a lot more of them than was even possible before. The technical achievement of, and like I said, they've been doing this demixing for a few years now, and they've done it on other, it's been used on other projects, but what it seems like and what you can attest to is they've separated it to the point, so you heard Ringo's drums separated out. Were there any artifacts or did it sound perfect? It, probably, it seems like they, they perfected it. Yeah. It sounds like they perfected it. Giles already says he wants to go back and do Sgt. Pepper, which was the first one in this special edition series five years ago. He's like, I already have to go back and do that with this technology. It's funny that, of course, Peter Jackson's team, this is their technology that they developed for this. And so far, they aren't letting other people use it. But he said Peter Jackson is just such a big Beatles fan. He, everybody else, wants to hear this. It's like the Beatles spirit of George Harrison financing my, the Monty Python movie Life of Brian because he said, I wanted to see the movie. And it's like that same spirit. Peter Jackson, like anybody else, he just he wants to hear this. It's amazing that the Beatles are still doing things technologically that the recording group is capable of doing at the moment. I, that tradition continues. Not to overly dwell on this, but the, on a technical level, it just astounds me because what it takes to do this. It's almost like in Star Trek, like the teleportation when they break down your component particles and then rebuild your component particles somewhere else. It's practically like that on an audio level because basically my understanding, I have read about how they've been attempting to do this. And basically is what you basically teach an artificial intelligence. This is what, not only this is what a bass sounds like, but this is what a Beatles bass sounds like, or this is what Paul's bass sounds like in this particular song. Go find it, fetch. And it basically pulls it out. I, it melts my mind that this is possible. Because I've heard shitty versions. There's even like lo-fi versions of this you can get yourself. You can do tracks. And there's always like ghosts, artifacts, like echoes, weird. It doesn't, it yeah. sounds weird. To get this perfect already, I thought that was 20 years away. I'm astounded. It is so, astounding. And you can really hear it even with, you know, 
layman's ears, no audiophile, but it's astounding that these songs, and again, even though this is one of the most analyzed albums of all time, one of the most closely scrutinized, one of the most obsessively listened to albums of all time, and there's still new stuff in the music itself, not added to the music, but new stuff in the music that we're just hearing for the first time. Giles also has made it clear that he actually sits with Paul McCartney and gives Paul an A-B switch and lets him go between the original stereo, the original mono, the remix. And if Paul doesn't like something, Giles takes it out or changes it. I guess all four camps have to sign off on it as well. Paul, Ringo, and then the estates of George and John. So this, is, this isn't something that they just sent someone off to play with and then it's released. It is approved and very much a Beatles product. And, you know, I thought it was worthwhile to actually go track by track on the album and then talk about how some of the outtakes feed our understanding of what's on the album. And we should mention that we're going back to April 6th, 1966 was the first day that the Beatles recorded for Revolver. And they were still touring. Like that people, you forget that they toured, they technically toured after Revolver was out. They didn't, they weren't on stage playing Tomorrow Never Knows. That's why it's hard to wrap one's head around it. But they, they certainly were out there playing Paperback Writer, which was a contemporary single. It's weird to, my brain has trouble with that, Rob, that, that they were still touring. It's, yeah, it's funny. And that this is something that they were making an album with Revolver, specifically knowing that they wouldn't play it on stage. It's almost like that was their mission. They wanted to come up with a whole album of stuff that they couldn't play on stage. But they weren't playing the Rubber Soul stuff on stage either. There's one of the poignant moments from the very last Beatles concert, which is later that summer, August 1966, in Candlestick Park. And at the end of the show, the last song they do is Long Tall Sally, which is very emotionally resonant since that's a song that John and Paul sang together as teenagers. At the end of the show, when everybody's leaving, John just plays the riff from In My Life, from Rubber Salt. And it's funny, it's almost like, this is why we're not playing live anymore, because we can't do stuff like this on stage. Yeah, they were like a Beatles oldies act on stage while they were doing the new Beatles stuff. A weird, weird disconnect that could not have lasted. And imagine being the person screaming out for Tomorrow Never Knows or Here, There, and Everywhere at Candlestick Park in August 1966, the, the Beatles, they, it's definitely weird, like you said, that they made Revolver while they were still a touring band and they hadn't officially decided to stop yet. But there's definitely a sense that this album, something else that Giles Martin said is that this, you know, you get the sense of Abbey Road as a safe space, that Beatlemania is very much on the outside and that what they were doing on this album was very much making an album where that outside world of Beatlemania, which was getting very ugly and sour by 1966, just could not invade and could not mess with their creative process. Let's start with Taxman. George Harrison's song, obviously. Paul McCartney guitar solo, obviously, in Jeff Emmerich's book. Jeff Emmerich, the Beatles engineer, had really had it in for George Harrison in his, in his book. He loved, and listen, there. if you really listen carefully to the whole Beatles catalog, you can hear... George growing as a lead guitarist and sometimes struggling as a lead guitarist. There are some dud solos on early Beatles records by George, and you can hear him working through it. Uh, 
And the way Jeff tells it, they lost patience with George trying to do the guitar solo and just had Paul play it. And Paul kicked ass on it. And then they liked it so much that they reprised it at the end of the song. But completely insane 13 second Paul McCartney guitar solo. Also, it's just, it's funny how I never knew that Paul played that solo until I read Jeff Emmerich's book, which came out about 15 years ago, I think, and a book that people love to argue about. I, I think it's one of the best books about the Beatles. But to me, it's amazing. Part of the story is that, you know, Paul played this solo and he didn't mind that everybody, almost everybody thought that George played it. I, most of my life, I thought George played this solo. It's an excellent example of how the Beatles' minds were working at this point, that like all four of them were pushing on to brilliance and they weren't fighting over credit yet. They weren't over, oh, this is my song. This is your song. You're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to do this to my song. They were all just, a, a, this is the closest we get to hearing the Beatles as just four minds completely tuned to the same wavelength. The same delightfully pissy personality that led George to write a song complaining about taxes <laughs> also led him to leave the studio for a couple hours after Paul was designated to play the guitar solo, but it all worked out. The song itself, and here's the thing, for me, there's no way that it does not draw on Neil Hefty's Batman theme. For me, it's just too big a coincidence that just very lightly, at least in the in the one drawn out, I, I, don't, I don't think I'll sing it, but the tax man, that part, I feel that it, and many other commentators have seen a, a small nod to the Batman theme. The math, the calendar math gets a little tricky because show had not, yes. the show had not debuted yet in the UK. The song though, the song obviously became a huge deal on the charts in the UK, the Batman song. And unclear whether they could have heard it. If they didn't hear it, that is a remarkable coincidence. Before Batman was on TV in the UK, they would have known the version by the Marquettes, who did the, the single version of it that predated that. That's certainly a single that they would have known before the show debuted on the UK. So... You could definitely see that they would have heard that before the show. My counter argument would be just A.B. Taxman with the Motown classic by Junior Walker and the All-Stars, Shotgun. And it becomes extremely obvious that Shotgun was the song that they had in their minds when they did Taxman. George is doing those Taxman, which is... Junior Walker and the All-Stars doing the shotgun. And also Paul is playing the exact same bass line, which of course was by the Motown legend, the greatest bass player ever, James Jamerson, who Paul McCartney was talking about him as his hero when nobody else in the world was saying his name. Like Paul was always very upfront about worshiping James Jamerson. And Taxman to me is a Beatles love letter to Motown. When you A-B those two songs, the groove is 100% from Shotgun. You can't dispute the influence there. But the Batman thing nags at me. Having put some time into this, the, the missing link that I can't totally put my finger on is whether Neil Hefty would have been someone who knew Shotgun. Because he was a jazz man. He was not in the pop world. It's conceivable that he would not know Shotgun. I don't happen to know in terms of the timeline whether he knew Shotgun when he composed this. Of course, he, Neil Hefty, if, if he was Count Basie's arranger, he was a fairly big deal. He was a huge part of Count Basie's music for 
20 years or so up to when he did these. So it was something where he was, he had a lot of his own music and a lot of his own credentials, but he wasn't really in the pop world. So it's possible that he wouldn't know this gigantic Motown hit, but the Beatles certainly knew it. So Shotgun came out February 13th, 1965. I'm going for common origin that that shotgun influenced both. Let's let's go with that. (laughs) I think so. What I haven't found is like Neil Hefty actually saying there was a song on the radio called Shotgun. uh, And it would be unlike him to hide that. It would would be unlike him to be ungenerous about that. He did specifically say that he had no idea what he was doing with Batman. He was just winging it, throwing ideas together. But to me, it sounds... the, The way I interpret this story is Neil Hefty and the Beatles are both imitating Shotgun. In terms of... George Harrison giving credit to Motown for his music, that begins, that's from the very beginning of the Beatles. All the Beatles were were extremely vocal about how Motown was their favorite music, the stuff they regarded as their peers that they were always trying to imitate from the beginning of their career to the end. There's that great moment on the White Album outtake version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, where George ruins the take. He tries to do a falsetto and he can't nail it. And he says, I tried to do a smoky and I aren't smoky. But with the Beatles, when in doubt, the answer is always Motown. That's how I feel about the Beatles and, and their music. Or else it's Carole King. But it's, it's to me, I, uh, yes. To me, Taxman is profoundly Junior Walker and the All-Stars. Which is the highest compliment. Revolver will always have some of my favorite guitar sounds and not just by the Beatles, but period. And it's the same, It's it, you can hear it also on the, the singles that should have been on the album in a better world if the Beatles weren't going by the rule that the singles didn't appear on the album. I don't know how to say that in a shorter manner, but Paperback Writer has a very similar guitar sound to Taxman, that, that beautiful, punchy rhythm guitar just defines for me what a power pop rhythm guitar should sound like. And I love that. I love the guitars in Taxman more than I love the song. It's also, we've people have spent decades making excuses for George complaining about taxes. It is true, the taxes were very high. They were like 90%. And you can see, no matter your political orientation, you can see how that would have been uh, annoying. You can also I, I see that it, nobody had clearly explained the process of taxation to George, and he didn't have a clear idea of what it was. So if you drive your car, they'll tax the street. It's no George, that's actually exactly the other way around. How they pay for the street is they tax your car. This is the first morning of the first day stuff, but it's also worth keeping in mind, George Harrison had never actually paid his taxes when he wrote this song. Is that right? Yes, none of the Beatles had. <laughs> their accountant, around this time, their accountant tried explaining to them why tax, what taxes were and why they should consider trying to save some money for them. And John Lennon said, don't be a drag, Al. So that was like the Beatles confronting taxes on a level that they could comprehend. But the Beatles, they had none of the four Beatles had ever paid any taxes when they wrote this song. I will say that when the National Review did a list of the top conservative rock songs of all time, Taxman was number two. <laughs> that is a fact. But I appreciate Questlove's attempt to recontextualize it as a version of Fuck the Police. That's so great. Can we talk- One of the millions of great things about this edition of Revolver is Questlove's essay on the Beatles is, it's a- he did the introduction, it's about Revolver, but it's also about the Beatles and like the Beatles' saturation in hip hop history. And yeah, I just love when he calls Taxman the, the fuck the police of its era. I just love that. If someone else made that argument, I would say that's a bit strained. But from, from Questlove, I'll allow it. I love the bold reconceptualization. Uh, Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. 
lives in a dream. That's one of those songs that's very hard to, there's stuff on this that it's so hard to hear afresh, but I feel like I almost got there. Incredible. This is Paul McCartney, a 23-year-old guy who is the toast of civilization at this point, arguably the most famous young man on the planet, certainly the most chaste and pursued and desired young man on the planet, certainly someone with a lot of other stuff in life to concentrate on, but here he is sitting in his girlfriend's attic and thinking about Eleanor Rigby and what it's like for lonely old person of what would have been his mother's generation. And just really just so much fascinating stuff going on on every level in this song. But just the weirdness of the fact that Paul McCartney wrote this song when he was 23 and that this was something he was spending time thinking about when he was 23. That's just one of the many things about Paul McCartney, one of the many mysteries of Paul McCartney that are hiding in plain sight. So it's hard to even compute how weird it is that this song ever happened. Yeah, the, the sort of storytelling lyrics, where do we think that came from? It's weird because obviously the closest parallel, Ray Davies, he wasn't really doing those songs yet. Ray Davies was still a year away from his great songwriting. He was already like one of the greatest songwriters on earth at this point. But with the storytelling aspect of what he did, this is more like a 1967 Ray Davies song. He hadn't done Two Sisters yet. So then I looked into her mirror Priscilla looked into the washing machine and the dredge Your Waterloo Sunset. As long as I gaze on Waterloo Sunset It's really, it's weird and oddly unexplained where a story like this would come from because there just, there isn't any real precedent for it in pop music. It's one of the weird ways where in, in some bizarre way, sometimes it seems like the Beatles are in fact underrated. It, it's really interesting to explicitly be able to say, actually, Paul did this before Ray Davies. At least you can't take away the sort of uh, proto riff rock of All Day and All the Night and the other Hard Rock King stuff, they definitely did that first. But this, unfortunately, wistful British countryside storytelling, unfortunately, Paul did it first. <laughs> yes, and Ray Davies was doing great character studies at this point. You know, he'd already done songs like Respected Man. Because he gets up in the morning And he goes to work at night Delicated follower fashion. It will make or break him, so he's got to buy the best because he's a dedicated and dandy. He was still a ways away from his picturing lonely old people pining away in their Eric's and Garrett's <laughs> in old England, gazing out at the dirty old Thames River under Waterloo Bridge. It's weird to think that Paul was doing this before Ray Davies was doing it, since we associated so much with Ray Davies' genius. When you reminded me of a well-respected man about town, I was sort of imagining uh, George Harrison and Ray Davies having a sneering contempt contest. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then Mick Jagger could jump in too. Also combined as a, a frilly silk ascot contest. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, so what do we learn about Eleanor Rigby from the alternate takes on this album? We're actually the one alternate take, take two. It's just astonishing. It's amazing that the classical musicians are there and George Martin is running interference between them and Paul McCartney, who's in the booth. And a moment that is so telling about everybody involved, but they discuss 
different ways to do the classical octet. It's eight strings. And they're talking about whether they should do it with vibrato or not. And the sound is, it's very nuanced, but they're like, should we do it with vibrato or should we do it dry? And George Martin gets on the booth, beams into Paul and says, listen, they're going to play it both ways. Which do you think it is? Which do you think it should be? And you hear so much of George Martin in there, just like how deferential he is, but also how fluidly he goes between the classical musician's language, which is his native tongue, and the Paul and translating it into what Paul wants. And also, but something equally telling to me is that Paul listens to it and he's, no, I don't really hear the difference. And again, okay, when I was 23, it was really difficult for me to say, yeah, I don't know this. I don't get this. I don't hear the difference. That's something that was always very distinctive about Paul McCartney. He was very unshy about asking questions about stuff he didn't know, talking about stuff he didn't know, asking about stuff he wanted to know. That's how he became Paul McCartney. And with Eleanor Rigby, George Martin and the musicians decide that's better without the vibrato. And George Martin says something beautiful. He's, yes, like, we should only use the vibrato if it has something to say. And that's such a perfect George Martin way of doing it. And nothing extraneous, nothing overly sentimental. And it makes the song, part of what makes Eleanor Rigby so intense rather than maudlin or sentimental, is that, you know, the strings are very austere and very dry and very severe. And vibrato would have thrown off the whole effect. Honestly, sorry to knock She's Leaving Home, but that's what would have happened. It would have turned the song into She's Leaving Home. And I'm not knocking She's Leaving Home, but it, Eleanor Rigby could not have existed in, in, in that argument without turning into a puddle of mush. That is a song that is so aided by the new mix because now Paul is inside the strings instead of standing over to, I believe, the right of them. It makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the best sort of Paul and strings song by far. Yes. Um, I don't think, and in this case, of course, it is just Paul and strings. There's famously, there's nothing else. And also hearing Paul talk about it and also hearing Paul being so deferential about the limits of his knowledge and George Martin also being so deferential. And we hear the musicians talking to each other. The musicians don't talk to Paul and Paul doesn't talk to the musicians. You hear like, God, like George Martin was a genius at so many things, but just, you know, that he's able to make everybody in this dialogue feel like they are a creative partner in this and they have a creative stake in it. It's the classical musicians who are the ones saying it's better without the vibrato. This isn't their song. Their names aren't going on the recording. And yet George Martin is able to absolutely convince them that that they have a creative stake in this song. It is, not to underscore the obvious, but it is extraordinary that George Martin could again and again just sit down with a pen and paper and just write out an arrangement like this. <laughs> I don't see Rick Rubin doing that with all respect. It's just a diff- different kind of producer. They were all quite fortunate to have found each other. You do love how much of the Beatles' individual personalities are coming out by this point. You have, I'm only sleeping... which says a lot about where John Lennon was as a person and also how he spent uh, a lot of the decade of the 70s and just his thing. (laughs) Like, it's very John. Yeah, totally. This is one of his most autobiographical songs. Like, lying in bed all day watching TV. He was committed to that. It wasn't just a phase he was going through. He was like, yeah, I'll spend five years watching Sesame Street 
in like the most expensive real estate in New York City. He he was into that. Um, but like you said, like all the Beatles' individual personalities are so accentuated on this album. And they're all really into being themselves. John loves being John. And he's the least assertive one at this point. Like Paul is really into being Paul. George is really into being George. And the fact that like a song, that, and they're all in, cr contributing such amazing individual bits of genius to John's song, which is a very personal John song about <laughs> wanting to sleep all day. <laughs> being really checked out emotionally also has a great backwards solo by George Harrison and another example of engineer Jeff Emmerich bitching about George. He describes his trepidation when he heard that George wanted to do this because in his words, it took him long enough to play guitar solos forward. Jeff's slight meanness aside, it's a, it's a great backwards solo. And it's fantastic. It also, it sounds so much like a cat purring on John's lap. It Something about this specific like backwards guitar solo. It's it's just a perfect sound, a perfect use of the guitar. It perfectly sums up the song. And another case of all the Beatles contributing individual, very individualized bits of their own genius to just make each other's songs better. There's none of the sort of territorial quibbling that became such a part of their thing a, a few years later. George is, this is just going to totally sum up the emotional power of John's song. And a very sad John song. It's funny that like when I was a kid, I thought this song was so funny. And you listen to it as an adult, and it's, this is a sad song. One of the things you get from, there's a take two. Please don't wake me, no, don't shake me, leave me where I am, I'm only... And the take five and a rehearsal fragment for I'm Only Sleeping is, this was one where it took them a while to find the groove, the lazy groove that they needed for this. Very much. It's why it's one of the Beatles songs from this record that nobody ever covers, because it's impossible to do. There's such a delicate balancing act in terms of the groove. Also, I love how it's so emotional. And even though it's making a joke out of being emotionally checked out of life, it's just very like intensely humorous and melancholy song at the same time. There's so many great little, just little tiny moments on this record. And Paul's bass is starting to really come to the forefront, as you mentioned, vastly influenced by Motown. He wanted the bass to be louder and more interesting. One of the many evolutionary things you can track in the Beatles catalog, um, and I actually did a thing on a, a road trip last year where we listened to the, their entire catalog in order, which is a very fun and revelatory thing. But one of, the, one of the things you can track in addition to George learning how to play the guitar, <laughs> one of the things you can track is how much more interesting Paul's bass lines get. It happens pretty quickly, but at this point, and on Sgt. Pepper, they start to be at their absolute peak. And there's just, there's a wonderful fill in I'm Only Sleeping. With you the know. Paul yawning solo. Paul McCartney, one of his unsung greats, the greatest yawner in rock and roll history. That <laughs> yawn is perfect. This is an example where the arrangement feels like the only possible arrangement that this song could have had. And yet we know from these outtakes that... Yeah. It didn't happen magically. They had to keep going and going until they got to this version. And then it's frozen and it's just perfect. Yeah, there's, um, there's that amazing version with the vibraphone. Amazing outtake that was already heard on Anthology. Just a fantastic different sort of jazzy, loungy approach to this song. 
which is really funny and really works, but it doesn't have the sadness to it and it doesn't have the sort of acerbic edge of the guitars. Again, that revolver guitar sound, it's really crazy how the Beatles came up with this specific guitar sound for this album, one of the greatest and most influential guitar sounds that any band has ever achieved. And they were like, okay, we did that. Let's move on to the next. (laughs) Incredible how many times they did that. They were like, okay, we invented something like unbelievably great. We'll leave generations of other bands to to fiddle with it. We're going to just move on to it again. So love you too. Classic George Harrison, Indian classical influence coming in there. George wrote this song because his wife, Patty Boyd, she told him that she wanted to hear him sing more beautiful words. So he decided to write this song, Love Me While I While You Can, while before I'm a dead old man. And he realized he didn't quite get the assignment, but came up with a great song. I love this song. What's also yeah, love me while you can before I'm a dead old man is very, very funny. He didn't actually need old. Yeah, yeah you don't need dead yeah. and old. You could have dead or old, but and I love, I just love the visual of him playing this for Patty Boyd. And she's, it's not quite what I meant, but it's such a perfect sort of sour George song. George was so good at those super bitchy songs disguised as religious songs. Nobody else was so good at that. I hate everybody. Everybody sucks. And you know why? Because God agrees with me. And (laughs) Love You Too is such a perfect song. Something I love about this song that's really highlighted is you hear the outtake where Paul is singing harmony. And it's Mm. a beautiful harmony. And it really transforms the song. It makes it something totally different. But you can also hear that they were like, yeah, the harmony's great, but the song works better without it because the harmony makes it too sweet. And this song is not a song where there should be any sweetness at all. And there's something so quintessentially Beatles, but specifically quintessentially Revolver about the fact that they put so much work into coming up with this really brilliant harmony, but they could hear beyond their vanity and hear that the song just, it worked better if they just left that hard one harmony out of the song completely. It really would have thrown off the song to have Paul McCartney singing along with Love You Too. This is a song that has to be just George alone raging at the cosmos. Again, it underscores their unfathomably rapid evolution that just a couple years after this sort of much more basic lyrics that they were singing, now we're singing A Lifetime is So Short, A New One Can't Be Bought. In a blink of an eye, they were in an entirely different place. And also the use of the Indian music was, I think, probably startling to a lot of Beatles fans at the time. Absolutely. He'd used the sitar on Rubber Soul. He'd done Norwegian Wood. But as he said, he hadn't learned the instrument at that point. That's him just like fiddling with it, learning what it can do. Um, And it's, it adds so much to that song. This is, this is actually sitar and tabla being played, playing them as the musical instruments they are, rather than using them as a foil for a guitar. And it's a completely different sound. It's really weird to hear the outtakes on this album where it's just more of a simple sort of folk song with guitar. And it's just, yeah, that's just, that's not what this song was meant to be. Actually, the take one, the folk song, really, as always, you can hear the Dylan influence. 
uh, obviously George's favorite artist of all time <laughs> and a huge influence on that, but it, it's very Dylan-y actually in that. And in fact, what the, one of the great things that the Indian instruments do is it completely disguises the, the blatant Dylanisms of this song. Yes, absolutely. As, as with Norwegian Wood too. It's funny how, yeah, this is a very, very Dylan song, but also just, it takes the sort of sourness of that mode of Dylan and he commits to it more than Dylan could at this point. To be fair, I can't really imagine Bob Dylan singing the line, make love all day long, make love singing songs. <laughs> I think only George might have uh, written that couplet well, actually. Well, the genius is only George could have made that the most depressing lines in the song. <laughs> the most depressing lines in one of his most depressing songs like make love all day long. I, I especially, I also, I just love, I'll make love to you. If you want me to, gosh, if thanks, I must. George. Yeah, so only, only, and then only a Beatle could sing that. Absolutely, uh, <laughs> um. it's what Harry Styles does live when he does "Adore You" and he's the audience sing the chorus. Just let me adore you, and he's okay if you insist. <laughs> but it's funny that George is doing that with a total straight face. You definitely can't imagine any of the other Beatles or Bob Dylan for, for that example. Just totally doing that deadpan. Okay, if you want me to, fine, Patty Boyd, fine. You twisted my arm. <laughs> Only low key, the most handsome beetle. Yeah. How about that? Could you say that? Well, uh, yeah. And this is, and honestly, this is a most handsome beetle song. If you're like, <laughs> if you're someone, I'm honestly like, this song is a real case for for George as the hot one. It's just, it's insane how he's so sullen in this song and so bitchy and so pouty and so hot. It's just insane. This is his Brigitte Bardot song. This is his just very like surly and very unpleasant. And, you know, it just makes him more attractive. When I compare it to Mick Jagger, who is master of this sullen, bitchy, hot move. And you AB this song and Ruby Tuesday. which was a song that the Stones wrote a few months after they heard this one. Like a lot of Stones songs from this period, you could tell what Beatles song had just come out when they wrote it. But Ruby Tuesday is just very plainly, Mick is trying to write his own Love You Too. And it's really funny how wow. he can't do it without turning into a total simp. Like, And Mick Jagger was such a genius at doing Paul imitations at this point. Very underrated part of Mick Jagger's genius is he was doing amazing Paul McCartney ripoffs at this point, <laughs> and yet he tried doing George, and he just couldn't do it. He just could not commit. As Homer Simpson said to Billy Corgan, he could not commit to his bleak worldview. Yeah. Has anyone ever successfully imitated George Harrison? I think, and you and I have talked about this before, but Nina Simone with her version of Isn't It a Pity? talking about yet absolutely got at the whole emotional range and emotional depth of georgianess nina simone and george harrison clearly had a lot in common and hearing her every time i hear her sing her 11 minute version of isn't it a pity i was like she really got george nobody ever got george nina simone did Jeez. well you know from everything i know about her uh, attitudinally and just <laughs> life story wise I actually think there's a lot to yes. that. It's too bad. I don't think they ever met, but yeah, they would have they would have had a lot to talk about. Yeah. And the more success they had, the more, yes, it, it just, very fascinating, very similar personalities in a lot of ways. But I love that. I think that's, I think that's weirdly very true. She, she sings, isn't it a pity? And it's, wow. Even with George Harrison singing this song, I never noticed how bleak and sarcastic it was. 
<laughs> one of the Paulist Paul songs ever written here, there, and everywhere. Like you said, it's the most Paul of Paul songs. It's got a very Fred Astaire kind of vibe. He was thinking specifically of Fred Astaire singing the, the Irving Berlin song Cheek to Cheek in the old movies. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can... But that's why it has that sort of old-timey beginning to lead a better life, which is a very sort of unusual thing to do. But also, fantastic Beatles singing backup vocals job and as always especially with 65 66 beatles like their backup vocals are just astonishing and without any kind of parallel that it but listen to the outtake of here there and everywhere on this album where it's just paul and his voice sounds so raw and fragile and vulnerable in a way that the original song doesn't at all and it's just incredibly powerful You also hear like how much it added to the song to have the others doing that. It's very, very like ethereal, very vulnerable Paul song. It's complicated on so many levels, but it just soars. I just, I completely love it. He says it's Fred Astaire to me. It's spiritually, it's Buddy Holly, but just perfect song. Paul, not afraid to be delicate, not afraid to be pretty. Absolutely. And again, with the Motown influence, which is never far away from the Beatles, but this is the smokiest of Paul songs, like in terms of his oft restated, his goal, his entire career is to to get close to where Smokey Robinson was as a singer and songwriter. And this is such a perfect sort of Smokey Robinson, the Miracle song. Even the guitar is very much like Marv Taplin's guitar on the early Miracles records throughout Smokey's career. Marvin and Smokey, one of the all-time great teams. But this song has that sort of delicacy that and intimacy that Smokey Robinson and the Miracles were able to conjure up almost at will. I mean, it's astounding like how prolific Smokey was at songs like this. And that this is where Paul just plainly set out to to do a Smokey song and, you know, he got it there, but it sounds not like a Smokey Robinson imitation. It, it sounds very Paul McCartney and a, a, a bit of old time showbiz in it. The sort of bearer version that you mentioned, the outtake, it's really interesting. For me, it helped me hear this song in a fresh way. Because sometimes the prettiness of the recording is a little overpowering for me. But hearing this raw version, what it reminded me of, it, it's really like very much like the indie pop version. It's very, it's like an Elliot Smith version of it. Totally. It's really what totally. it is. And it's, I do, the poignancy of it hit, hits me more in that version, I will say. Yeah, and and... And that is just Paul sort of feeling his way around in the song. You could definitely feel how much more confident he is telling this story in the version on the album that we all know. But hearing this version and the way he lingers on the line, love never dies, and it's really just breathtaking. And also the way he sings Watching Her Eyes, which is one of the great Paul McCartney lines. One of the ways Revolver is a breakthrough for him after the huge breakthrough on Rubber Soul is that in terms of his songs about his songs about women and imagining their thought process and trying to hear the moment from their perspective and see the moment from their perspective, almost like he wants to be Paul McCartney and Jane Asher at the same time. And that's just, it's funny that Smokey is one of the few other songwriters who you can imagine 
pulling off an achievement like this. I mean, the song is delicate, is here, there, and everywhere. But just the way he's watching her eyes and wondering what she's hoping about and dreaming about. Breezy sounding on the surface, but just so much calculation as a songwriter going into it. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders, which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change, terms apply. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. Fire, yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade. Life-size hardboard cutout. <laughs> this is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. So, Yellow Submarine. In the town where I was born, lived a man who sailed to sea. And I love that, as you mentioned when we first heard it, 
that Paul has been telling a story about the writing of this song for 50 years that he seems to have forgotten the real origin of this song. He remembers, he definitely wrote the chorus by himself, but he, you can find a first person account where Paul says, well, I just started writing this thing. I need something with just a few notes in it for Ringo as usual. And, uh, but that's not what happened. What actually happened is that John had written this entirely different, hilarious downer, folk downer of a song that actually became this song. He picked up the melody from this John song. In the place where I was born, no one cared, no one cared. Completely shocking to hear. And this is something that was never bootlegged, never known about, wasn't even rumored. It, it was something that just flat out nobody knew existed. There's one radio interview from 1966 where John is talking about the song and he says, and he's talking with Paul and he says, if I remember like we had a bit of mine, that was the verse and we linked it up with a bit of yours. That was the chorus and talk about how they did that. But, you know, I think that was that's the only time as far as insofar as is known that they told that story. And John was the king of say something once off the top of his dome that he hasn't given any thought to and then forget about it. So you have to take a lot of what John says, especially if it's something John says only once, like most things John said. And you have to take those with a grain of salt. But the fact that this song had such a strange beginning that just flat out nobody knew about, and nobody would have guessed. Honestly, the last thing going in to the new edition of Revolver that anybody would be thinking was, I bet I'm about to have a lot of feelings about Yellow Submarine. <laughs> But it's starting to hear John sing this as this really sad song, almost like the kind of song he'd go on to write on the White Album or Plastic Ono Band, like, in the town where I was born, no one cared. No one cared. It's really sad and vulnerable. And a testament to the genius of Paul McCartney that he could hear that and think, you know what? Ringo, song about boats. That's the ticket. The joke that... In- four million people have made is he took a sad song and made it better, uh, which is, which he, 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 he did in fact. And it is weird also yeah, listening to that John thing, which is, again, it's very sad, but also a little bit funny because it's just, it's just a bit much. It also does. It is right in that crux point where it could be a John solo demo, or it could be a Kurt Cobain solo demo. If this was one of those those recovered Kurt Cobain tapes, you wouldn't be that surprised. It's just the same. Yes. And and you mentioned Elliot Smith with regard to here, there, and everywhere. But like this version of Yellow Submarine, it really does sound like Elliot Smith. Honestly, it sounds like Elliot Smith said, I think Yellow Submarine would be better if it was about my sad childhood. But that the song began that way and that it just muted. The fantastic, my favorite outtake on the box is when it's after the original John Bedroom demo. And it's John and Paul trying to do it in the studio. And they're trying to do it as almost like an Everly Brothers kind of duet. And you can hear in the beginning that they're singing it together. And you can also hear, you can hear the moment when it happens, when Paul realizes, oh, wow, this is really personal for John. And he just backs off and lets him sing it. And so much like instinctive generosity about it, but also like instinctive musicality. But you could just hear that he's, oh, wow, we began this as a Everly Brothers duet, but he's got he's to gotta take this song home. A series of revelations about Yellow Submarine is not, like you said, I don't think anyone expected. Or wanted, or was asking for. But also an- another thing about the early versions of Yellow Submarine is the way John is playing guitar in that very, like, Dylan-style finger-picking way. And as far as 
everybody thought and everybody knew, like, this was the kind of guitar style that he learned to do in India while he was on retreat, that he's playing all over the White Album in songs like Julia and Dear Prudence, that he's doing this sort of finger-picking that he supposedly learned from Donovan, like in, in India, and that here he is doing it two years before that, and he's doing it on fucking Yellow Submarine. <laughs> it's really, there's a lot we're learning from this edition of Revolver, but honestly, there's so much going on in this version of Yellow Submarine that forces us to rethink what we thought we knew about the Beatles. You can't imagine Revolver without this song. It's such a perfect Ringo song. It's such a perfect Beatles song. And again, like just the musical genius of Paul McCartney that he heard all these musical ideas and he was like, this has got to be the Ringo Kitty song. This is, this is before Octopus's Garden. This is before there's any sort of tradition of a Ringo Kitty song. I, the story that Paul tells, which I think is just a beautiful story, but also like a very accurate one where he's, you know, he's lying in bed. He's maybe a, a, a little bit buzzed and, you know, he's like after sort of between sleep and dreaming. And he's like Ringo singing this song. And it's amazing that kids have been singing with Ringo with this song. Ever since, Ringo is still the gateway drug for little kids becoming Beatle fans. That's something that does not change. And Yellow Submarine is such a huge part of that. And I think that Paul heard the different sort of emotions in this song and realized how to best capitulate on that musically. I think he had the bit, the song that John wrote in his head, and it just stayed in his head like something he heard on the radio. And he wrote Yellow Submarine to that melody. I think that's what happened. I think so. It's hard to say. Also, because Yellow Submarine, everybody really assumed over the years that this was a Paul song that John hated. And there's the famous note that John left in the studio with regard to Yellow Submarine, where he just wrote, disgusting, see me, like an angry teacher who didn't like this homework assignment. And, and we find out that John is the one originating this song. Um, it, it, just a real surprise, because we all thought this was the kind of thing John just gritted his teeth and put up with it's almost like the scene in get back where they're all playing maxwell silver hammer for the first time it's okay you guys are all busted it's on record that you all really liked this song the first day it's the paul within john that john hated the most that is absolutely true that is absolutely true but also Yellow Submarine, it feels like it was written fast because the words are really hasty. They don't make any sense. Like, why is submarine rhyming with submarine? Why does the second verse just trickle off? They're, they couldn't think of a last line for the second verse. It's just a really haphazardly thrown together song, and it's designed to sound thrown together. Like a lot of things the Beatles did, a lot of work went into making it sound more spontaneous than it was. So she said, she said. She One of your faves. I do like this song. I guess John, John wasn't super attached to this song. He wasn't like eager to have it on the album. They needed a track. It was that kind of thing. Yeah, but you don't know. Again, with John, you take stuff like that with a grain of salt because he often said that about songs that he really put his heart and soul into. And this song is it's just really revealing. Everybody knows the basic story of they were all doing acid in L.A. and Peter Fonda flipped out and started talking about his childhood death near death experience and but also it's just it's a very 
Confused and Vulnerable John song, the whole like when I was a boy part, a song that they had a fight in the studio and Paul didn't play or sing on it. So it's you could hear the combination of George and John in the vocals. And that was a rare combo because usually Paul was there. But songs where it's just George and John singing together, it's not many of them. But when you hear him, it's God. That's a fantastic combination. So is it, it's George on bass? It's presumably George on bass. There isn't a record who played bass, but it's not Paul. The George, John, Ringo. What other tracks have just that team on them? Besides oh, various John Lennon solo albums. <laughs> Good example is uh, You're Gonna Lose That Girl, which has, you know, Paul's playing on it. It's not like a thing like you walked out of the studio, but the vocals are John and George. And you can hear what a fantastic combination that is. You really got to hold on me is another like example. Like it's the vocals are John and George. I don't lie. And you can hear there's something special about that two-person mix. And again, it's rare because Paul is usually there singing with one of them or both of them. It's a rare sort of duet to hear, but it's fantastically powerful. And she said it's almost like that's the right element of sarcasm. And even though there isn't a lot of sarcastic lyrical con- content in the song, it still sounds really sarcastic because of the guitars and the voices. When you think about acid songs on this album, it pairs nicely with Tomorrow Never Knows. It's a little bit of a preview of where you're going to go with Tomorrow Never Knows in some ways. The songs are linked, have always been linked in my mind in some way. Totally. Very different views of acid experience that Tomorrow Never Knows is up in your mind, listen to the color of your dreams. And this one is, oh no, when you do acid, it means you're going to hang out with a bunch of really creepy white people who are like trying to lay super neurotic trips on you. Unless you're in P-Funk, then you might have a very different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's fun. This song, like, it always weirdly reminds me of the Richard Pryor routine about doing acid and the sort of the acid voice that he hears in his head, which is like super like nagging white person. He's basically who by the end of his acid trip is doing Hal 9000 from 2001. He's going far out. And there's a lot of combinations, a lot of connections between John Lennon and Richard Pryor in terms of terms of their life, in terms of their art, in terms of the tone of their voices. But to me, like she said, it always reminds me of Richard Pryor's acid trip. I just, I love that he one-ups the line that didn't come from him, that came from Peter Fonda. I know what it's like to be dead with, you're making me feel like I've never been born, which is just this weird sort of like, just one-upmanship. There's a few ways to look at that line. It's a, I think about the LSD experience and the losing your identity, but it's also, you're annoying me. Like, this is the kind of song that would scare me away from drugs as a child, because I'm like, you know, <laughs> it, it's one thing, if you take this, you'll see dragons and lizards and stuff, but it's, if you'll take this, you'll have to have really boring conversations about death with really <laughs> psychotic dudes. And it's funny how it captures that environment, even before anybody would know the story about this song. This is basically the, the girl you wish you hadn't talked to at a party sort of routine. I guess it's a little bit like the SNL one-upmanship sketch. Where it's, yeah, oh yeah, you know what it's like to be dead? Yeah, I, know. I feel like I've never even been born. It's worse than being dead. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yes. Totally. I'm um, way higher than you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know what it is to be high. You don't know what it is to be sad either. When I was a boy, everything was all right. Look what's happened since, yeah. Robert Criscott wrote this great thing about this song at the time. He was writing like specifically about like Paul Simon's lyrics, circa 1960, but he said like, Paul Simon had written this song. He would have started arguing with the girl. No, he was the one who knew what it was like to be dead. 
but this is a it's it goes like beyond the verbal content it's, i think it's largely the voices and guitars but there's a lot of stories in this song that they're all there and it is a pretty comic song good day sunshine good day sunshine good day sunshine good not one of my favorites personally i, I it's yeah i so paul has linked it to daydream by the love and spoonful which is interesting what a day for a daydream what a day for a daydreaming boy yeah which honestly i think it's the mood i think it's the music awful lot of super stoned super smiley people in 1966 singing about sunshine but this is like a very light-hearted hippie song it's i gotta admit this good day sunshine is one of my skips on the album i think it's it's my personal skip this might be the only one i skip it is a hilarious tonal transition from she said she said it is and i like it a lot more in this version than i ever have before i can hear what people are talking about when they talk about the, the, the harmonics and the chorus to me it's i like what it adds to the album in terms of tone and change of pace but it's yeah it's it, i don't really hear a song there yeah, it's fun. I like it. I have to say this version, like I've listened to more than uh more than the real version, certainly like in, in the past twenty years or so. This version, like I'm hearing things in it that I like a lot. And I'm realizing that the album feels a bit incomplete without it, because I always thought this song does what here, there, and everywhere does, but in a sort of less emotional, less sincere kind of way. It's but the jauntiness of it and the jolliness of it, very Paul and I it it adds a lot to the overall flow of the album, even if it's not a favorite of mine either. I'd call it my least favorite on the album. I think my favorite part of the whole song is the brief breakdown at the end where it just breaks at the very end, when it breaks down into sort of a Beach Boys acapella thing for just a couple seconds. And I want to hear more of that personally. Yeah. That part that part is cool. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. Also the finger snapping on the song, just like really damn good. I have to say between this song and Here, There, and Everywhere, like Revolver is the best finger-snapping Beatles album. They really got the thing of having a, just a discreet, like, to punctuate a quiet moment. Here, There, and Everywhere, it's like, it's totally nuts how now we can hear more of the finger snaps that were always there. They were just buried in the mix. Like a lot of things on this album that were, were always there in the mix, but we can hear them now. But just the in Good Day Sunshine and Here, There, and Everywhere. It's like Paul McCartney was a finger-snapping master. Yawning and snapping his fingers and writing songs. What That man was multi-threat. It's very easy to picture a 1966 Paul McCartney snapping his fingers. It's the easiest <laughs> thing in the... <laughs> Just snap my fingers. This version of Revolver, this is the first time that like I've actively listened to Good Day Sunshine and enjoyed it for many years. And I'm like... I, wonder if it's just so much of the sound, but like that great moment that you mentioned at the end with the vocals layered and the way it just builds and fades at the same time. It's just, I definitely appreciate that. And And Your Bird Can Sing is actually one of my, probably one of my top five Beatles songs. I really adore this song. There's nothing like the guitar riff to And Your Bird Can Sing. In their heads, it was a birds thing. It was meant to be like the birds. John and George are playing a lengthy harmonized guitar part in it that is just extraordinary. 
It's one of the longest <laughs> guitar riffs in rock history. It just goes on and on. And the harmonies that they worked out are amazing. There's some fancy guitar players who figured out a way to play it all on one guitar. Joe Walsh has famously said that like he learned to play it as a kid, not knowing that the John Android were playing it, so he learned to play it himself. Joe Walsh has been heard to crack the joke. He's, I'm the only person who could actually play this Beatles guitar solo. It's not even the Beatles could play it. But it's it's astounding, and that's just the beginning of the song. It's There's so much in this song. The song is so short, and yet this is a song where any three-second stretch of the song is just packed with genius and surprise. Now, there's a couple of theories about what this song is about. I like the, the very unlikely one. really hope that what it's about is that in the Gay Talese uh, profile of Frank Sinatra, it's revealed that Frank Sinatra referred to his penis as his bird. And my dream is that this song is inspired by that and that there's actually parts of it where if you imagine that he's singing to Frank Sinatra on behalf of his generation, it really works. I realize this is extremely unlikely, but I would love that to be the case. I think the, <laughs> the other version is he's singing about Mick Jagger and his bird that can sing is Marion Faithful. Both intriguing theories. The second <laughs> one has been debunked in terms of timing. Um, the Married Faithful one. Yes. Good. She, okay. She wasn't with Mick Jagger at that point. That would take I, down that one. To me, I think this song is about Mick Jagger, not Marianne Faithful. I, I think Mick Jagger is the bird. Um, the Sinatra thing, it seems like more of a loopy, cute, fanfic kind of theory. Tell me about your version of the Mick Jagger theory. I have, it's funny, hearing this song all my life, I've had really ideas about that. I, I feel like I have a really vivid John creates the character so well, the person he's singing to, who's a hipster who really wants to be cool and really wants to impress John Lennon. And he's asking about how hippie he is. He's definitely like a sort of pretentious wannabe, the kind of person that Mick Jagger was constantly writing songs about in 1965 and 66 and 67. Don't you bother me. Don't you copy me. Honestly, Mick Jagger wrote so many great put downs of people like that in, in this era. And so did Bob Dylan. John has got real compassion for this wannabe hipster poser and john is like yeah when your little world comes crashing down i'll still be around we can interact as human beings when you're not trying to impress me with your material things or your status symbols or even your status symbols of spiritual achievement it's weird that john thought it was a garbage song though consistently said it from the 60s to the final interviews of his life john never had a kind word to say about this song i think it's one of the best he ever wrote i'm with you this is a top five Beatles song for me so what, I guess the mystery is like, what is the bird in this? <laughs> what is the bird? That's the real mystery. And your bird can sing. It's just, I guess, the poshness and sophistication of their lifestyle. You've heard every sound there is and your bird can sing. Your bird can swing too. Your bird can swing. See, that's where I genuinely, I genuinely wonder whether there's something to the Frank Sinatra thing. I have to say, I did the... Your bird can swing does make me wonder. Yeah. It's, it, it really does. It really does. God knows. The Beatles were obsessed with Sinatra. There's no doubt of that. And John was obsessed with Sinatra and Ringo's wife, Maureen. Sinatra was her biggest hero. She liked Sinatra even more than she loved the Beatles. And so that's certainly like a certainly a reference point that would have been on their minds. It's, that's interesting subjects of the song. But I think it's swing in the Sinatra sense that somebody who's, whether they're trying to be you know, the ultimate swinging London his, hipster sophisticator, or whether they're trying to be a rat pack swinger hipster. There's always that sort of person in pop culture who's always trying a little too hard. 
And John recognizes a bit of himself in this person. I think there's also, it's another one of those like interesting, arrogant John songs. Because if you think about the line, no one I think is in my tree, which he later said, I think to Jan, that is, that's really about like, I am a singular genius. I think that he's saying something similar about, you've heard everything, you get everything, but you can't hear me. You can't see me. Like I'm, I'm on, I'm next level. I think that's the other, I really think that's really interesting. I really think that's part of what's going on there. This just like, this, it's an interesting personality. It was one song where it's like, I just want to sit around and be lazy. And another song that, that is, I am imperceivable. I am, I am so far beyond, if you've seen everything, you can't see me, you can't hear me, which is really interesting. It's the, the combination of total arrogance and total laziness that is a truly <laughs> toxic, <laughs> but yet artistically productive uh, personality. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot like Bob Dylan songs of the period, like a Rolling Stone or just like a woman songs. She takes just like a woman. Yes, she does. She makes love. Where somebody a super hip insider and Bob is, yeah, I see through you. You're gonna like totally fall apart. And Mick Jagger wrote great songs like that. Don't you bother me. Right on, baby. By the time you're 30, you're going to look 65. You won't look pretty, and your friends will have kissed you goodbye. Mick Jagger and Bob Dylan had a certain amount of sadistic pleasure in put-downs like that. To me, it's John's compassion with this person who is, like, too big into their ego trip to even really hear what John is saying or see John or relate to other people. And John's, yeah, after this little ego trip of yours comes crashing down, maybe we can be friends, like actual real friends. It's so markedly different. This is one of the many songs from this period where the Beatles are just so effortless about a kind of cool that Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger are trying so hard for. And that's not to dispute the genius of the songs that Dylan and Jagger are writing at this time, obviously. But it's funny when you A-B them with the Beatle version of the Beatle song that they're trying to rewrite. Dylan and Jagger sometimes sound very much like they're trying too hard. But like the actual great Mick Jagger example of the song that John Lennon isn't writing here is 19th Nervous Breakdown. Which is like a fantastic song. And John is like, you're a socialite, you're a hipster, you're darling of London society, you've got such, so many fashionable neuroses, and yet your 19th nervous breakdown is coming, and you know we're all going to laugh at you, and what a fool you've turned out to be. And it's really funny that John's going a little further into the story and saying, maybe that'll be when your real life begins, not when hmm. it ends. But the, this is a song where the outtakes just add so much. It's just, it's insane how these outtakes are totally different approaches to the song. I'm glad that the album one is the one they went with, but they're all just just astounding. The the giggling version, where we just hear John and Paul unable to sing a single line of the song because they're cracking each other up. What a powerful and contagious sound that is. I guess Cynthia, his wife supposedly said that it might have been inspired by something, some real life incident. According to this Kenneth Womack book, 
the long and winding roads, the evolving artistry of the Beatles. And your bird can sing. And he is, in fact, quoting from Cynthia Lennon's memoir, unfortunately titled Memoir, A Twist of Lennon. I bought a clockwork bird in a gilded cage, which I wrapped up carefully, just leaving the winding mechanism at the base exposed. Before handing it to John, I wound it up. The imitation bird warbled loud and clear from its perch as John unwrapped the strange-looking gift with an expression of sheer disbelief on his face. And Womack then goes on to say that Bird in the Gilded Cage offered, quote, increasing testimony about their ineffectual marriage. It's a weird, weirdly phrased. As well as regarding what he perceived to be her utter failure to understand him. Oh my God, he's ruining this song for me right at this moment. So <laughs> you tell me you've got everything you want and your bird can't sing, but you don't get me, you don't get me. But let's face it, Brian, this story is extremely sketchy. If this clockwork bird existed, I would think we would have seen it. It's, it also, I don't think if you truly look at the lyrics, I don't think it really tracks that it's about someone complaining about their marriage. I don't think that fully tracks. And John just didn't sing songs putting down Cynthia. He just didn't do that. He had 10 million flaws as a husband. He didn't complain about her in songs. He that just wasn't a topic that inspired him. And also, if, if she gave him the bird, it's not her bird, so it's his bird. <laughs> so. It's his damn bird. Yeah. Honestly, I, pick, I, I think of Mick Jagger and maybe even more Brian Jones being the kind of person that John is singing to here. Somebody who has you know, got a lot of themselves invested in their own coolness and their own sort <laughs> of ego. Choice. I'm laughing because imagine if both Ballad of a Thin Man. You walk into the room. With your pencil in your hand, you see some. <laughs> and your bird and your bird can sing were both written about Brian Jones. I think that's <laughs> unlikely, but that would be extreme. Just everyone's just the greatest songwriters who ever lived, just lining up to take shots at poor Brian Jones, just just pummeling him like Joe Pesci at the end of, of Casino, just <laughs> pummeling him with a baseball bat of great songs. And poor Brian Jones, his bird was in fact broken by the end. Yeah, that's wild. I just <laughs> you just picture them all. Come on, I got to get one more Brian Jones song out while he's still alive. <laughs> this song can't wait till the end of the weekend. You just don't know. I love that. Yes. They're all about Brian Jones. They're um, all about Brian Jones. Yes. <laughs> Let's just go with that. I do love also in the outtakes that shows that they, how hard they worked on the guitar intro. Yes. They were the and Beatles. They were very good at this, but it needed work. They needed work to get something that magical. Yes. And you listen to the, the super chiming take that, that is clearly like very like linked to the birds. It's fantastic, but you can also hear, yeah, the birds couldn't have done a song like this on the best day of their life because they, they did not have Ringo playing drums. It's like, sorry, Michael Clark. Now I think of it, the Bert, Michael Clark, the only drummer in history who is hired because the band thought he looked like Brian Jones. Hmm. He'd never even played the drums. Roger McGuinn just spotted him and said, that guy looks like Brian Jones. He should be in my band. I've got a vacancy for a drummer. Yeah, the first version is just a pure bird's rip, and what they ended up with is so much more complex than that. Uh, all thanks to that clockwork bird. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it, actually. Uh, I actually Cynthia's. think that Frank Sinatra is more likely than, is more likely, in my opinion, despite, yeah. I'm going with <laughs> Brian Jones. And the next one is also under two minutes long for no one. Your day breaks 
your mind aches you find that all their words of kindness linger on when she my god what a song but this one i would totally believe that paul had sinatra on the mind this is another one of the songs where you're like this guy's 23 he's to me it's astounding that for no one exists this is a song where i've been i've loved this song my entire life and still every single time i hear it i'm like where on earth did this song come from yeah the chorus especially given like people's sort of prejudices and caricatures of paul is some is some brutal shit <laughs> in her eyes you see nothing no sign of love behind the tears it's rough absolutely and again it's like it's another example of paul ex- trying to experience the moment from his lover's perspective he's like so yeah you're just sitting home she's going out and if somebody brings up your name he just smiles politely and says she doesn't need him she knew someone but now he's gone she doesn't need him again comparing it to bob dylan just like a woman but bob dylan has that wonderful last verse he's like when we meet again introduced as friends please don't let it and paul is already there paul is already yep she's got a point she doesn't you're not part of her story anymore it's really like a cold-blooded song and also such an empathetic song it's his hotline bling the guy is sitting home and she's wearing less and going out more you used to call me on my cell phone did you take anything away from the instrumental backing track that take 10 that's on there it's phenomenal just hearing paul and ringo do this song it, i love also how this tech, take 10 begins with paul's just running down the song for ringo and so ringo's should i do just like straight up i think what ringo says is what should i just keep it straight then not do anything else and paul says no do I love that. It's just like a little momentary interaction, but this the whole spirit of the album right there. I love how Ringo typically is like, how does the song, how can I serve the song? How can I just play with the singer? And Paul's, no, go nuts. Do whatever you want to do. And it's just a beautiful example of the sort of like the free flow of ideas that created something like Revolver. It's Paul on piano and Ringo on drums. And it's just fantastic. Also, again, the thing with the special edition listening to this mix, Ringo's there on the version that we all know and love. And we've all, you think about the song, you think, yeah, like Ringo's playing on it. It's just, it's funny how Ringo's so stealthy on that. And listening to this version, it's wow. Like the song, it does not take off without Ringo. Ringo's doing so much support work that is designed not to be noticed. But you just hear what Ringo's doing on the song, on the version that we all know and love. Also, there's acoustic guitar in there, which I had just flat out never heard before. I'm sure I felt it before. It's one of those things in Beatles records that you subliminally feel, but I was like, God, the acoustic guitar adds so much. On the note that sometimes these guys can be underrated, I, one of the revelations for me in recent years was how good Paul is and was at piano. This isn't a super challenging song, but there's little bits where you, first of all, he's just so dead on. You know, you forget to think of him as a piano player, but he was nailing these takes of pretty complex piano parts over and over again. And there's things that, there's other things by him that are like Martha, my dear, that are actually like total show off show pieces that people don't even realize how fancy they are as piano pieces. And he's not even known as a piano player. People know he plays piano. You picture him at the piano playing Hey Jude, but he's a really good piano player on top of everything else who comes up with really remarkable piano parts. It's 
really wild. It's so wild. And like you said, underrated. It's a thing where it's going to take us decades to catch up with these Paul McCartney mysteries that are basically in plain sight. But it's just, oh, yeah, this guy was bringing so much just as a piano player. If that's like all he was in the Beatles. When if he I, was Nicky Hopkins. Notably, I guess when I was lucky enough to go into Abbey Road with him when I did a Paul McCartney cover story, I think I was given about 36 hours to prepare for, maybe, which was just one of those weird Rolling Stone things. But there I was in the studio with Paul. And the first thing he did was jump over to a piano and be like, this is the piano we recorded Lady Madonna on and started playing Lady Madonna. And the second thing he did was jump on a drum kit and start playing drums. I guess that's I his, that. yeah, something about something about where Paul's head is at, maybe. But... Let's see. So that takes us, we're getting through the album. Dr. Robert. The least exciting Paul bassline on the whole album. I think for me, what makes this song is the bridge. The incredible, well, 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 you just can't tell where it like explodes into Technicolor after the rest of the song is relatively drab. But I do like this song. It's just a, a more minor song. It, yeah, it's minor, but I totally love it. I think it's fantastic. I love the guitar on it. It's just fantastic. Also, Paul's harmony singing in this is just like insane. Like, I, I love his, he's a man, you must believe. Like, sometimes Paul does like wonderful backup singing flourishes that carry the song, but because he's Paul, he's, they're designed for you not to notice them. The song doesn't work without him, but he's trying very hard so that you don't notice he's even there. Ticket to Ride is a great example. In this song, he's doing really flashy backup harmonies, which he usually doesn't do, and it adds so much to the humor of the song. I would say that this is a case where the song itself as a composition isn't much, but everything about the way they bring it to life is incredible. Every guitar part, every harmony, every little arrangement bit. So Excellent point. Yeah, totally. It's it, nothing composition that becomes a great recording. The little arpeggiated guitar bits, like just a million great little parts in the song. There was a cartoon series, Beat Bugs, a few years ago. That, <laughs> I don't know it, this. Okay, so it was really cool. It was, it was on Netflix. It was about six, seven years ago, and it was meant to introduce really little kids to the Beatles catalog. Every week, these little bugs would have an adventure, and they would, there would be Beatles songs built into the adventure. And they did a great thing with Dr. Robert. It was like some, a character had cold <laughs> and went to Dr. Robert, and it was like a really great sort of psychedelic and that weirdly made me love the song again shout out beat bugs oh so i want to tell you i love the syncopation of the opening riff and with ringo pulling the beat back with where the snare comes in that's one of my favorite little rhythmic things on any beatles record this is a top three like revolver song for me and it's really weird how it's really underrated it's a very george song it's one of the last kinds of these early george songs that he wrote he wrote such great songs about being a shy guy which by all accounts he wasn't <laughs> except when he was trying to get the other beatles attention sometimes but i want to tell you is just uh really just a delicate song it's very again it's very funny on the surface but there's a lot going on emotionally and that syncopation that you mentioned is just, it's 
totally off the hook. I love it. And this sort of dissonant piano that Paul's playing in the verses is just really great. And really like incandescent harmonies. There are George songs that feel a lot less beatily than this one. I think they really bring it fully into the fold with their harmonies on this one. Yeah, totally. Also, I love in the outtakes how you know they're doing early versions of this song, and it turns out George still hasn't been able to think of a title for it. And so he's calling it Granny Smith, which is the same working title as Love You Too. I just love that George was capable of these incredibly brilliant lyrics and really slow to figure out what the title of the song was. Even though this one goes, I want to tell you over and over again. And you Isn't Ringo in the background saying, basically saying, just call it, I want to tell you. <laughs> yes. And it's, boy, when Ringo's stepping in and giving, giving songwriting pointers from the drummer's chair, like, it's, that's a case that even Ringo has his breaking points in terms of patience. So, but it's also... It's funny to hear how like good-natured and friendly that the mockery is, even when they're making fun of George for not being able to come up with the song title. So John says, Granny Smith, take friggin' two. But it's just the tone is really different from the kind of arguments they were having in the studio a little later. And track 13 is Got to Get You Into My Life. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find. banger it's not my favorite but i also find it undeniable it's a favorite of mine it and it grows and grows for me this song i loved when i was a little kid and it just grows so many like great details in this song that the paul lyric is just an extremely paul 1966 lyric he's what's he out looking for another kind of mind and ringo's drumming is like completely insane that ringo drum hook into the chorus you think about like how much great rock and roll just comes from that. Like just that drum intro in itself. It's okay. Like it's basically like an awful lot of the greatest Blondie songs are Clem Burke doing that kind of hook. Clem Burke was probably the best one after Ringo to ever do it. But there's so much in terms of all the details in the song and put together, they add up to a really weird hole. I love how at the end, just that guitar break comes in and turns it into a totally different song. My favorite thing is I recently saw someone on Twitter who found out for the first time that Got to Get You Into My Life was not an original by Earth, Wind, and Fire. I love that <laughs> so much. I love that. Oh, my God. One of the best Beatles cover versions. Another road where maybe I can see another side. Yeah. And I love how they take out the another kind of mind and like, Another road. Maybe I could see another sign there. And it, it's, yeah, that, it works great for that version of the song. It's a different song that way. I love it. It's one of the most irreverent and creative Beatle covers of the 70s. I just, Earth, Wind, and Fire could do no wrong. Speaking of things where I never quite bought the line of what the song is about, Paul has said more than once a million times that it's about his feelings about marijuana. And I don't know, <laughs> like, it's... It's a goofy way to hear the song because he's so over the top and his enthusiasm for it. So to be expressing like that much, yes, like weed is great and everything, but I don't know. I don't love that. I like to pretend I don't know that part. Okay, that's so interesting you say that because that story always seems a little weird, always seems a little off. And yeah, I don't get it. It's almost, I, I wonder if it's just Paul sort of resisting his brand. He's like, oh, I'm the girl beetle. I'm the one who writes love songs. It's like, no, this one is different. It's about weed. It's to me, it, it doesn't seem like it. It seems very much like the songs about women that he was writing in 1965 and 1966. It to me, it it sounds like a Paul song about a woman. 
I think he was just trying to be cool. I don't know. I just, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did feel that way. Obviously, I think he he did uh, every single day of his life for a long time. <laughs> it, that to the point where I'm just imagining him, him singing it to his little stash of weed as he went through customs in, in Tokyo. But but I, there may have been. Did some... I tell you I need? <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it really holds. When you consider the whole song in light of that, no, it doesn't really. I don't think that flies. Also, he'd gotten it into his life pretty thoroughly at this point. Like, he was well into a year of being very enthusiastic pursuer of this other kind of mind. It's funny, I can't totally explain why that that official story about the song doesn't quite sit with me. There's a few rough versions of this on the collection. What, What did you take away from those? I love hearing the version where instead of the horns section, they have just like George playing it on Buzztone guitar. It's fantastic. It's real like garage bandy. Like a lot of the outtakes, it's hard rock, the kind that people think that the Beatles weren't doing yet in 66, but you listen to the outtake of Got to Get You Into My Life. Also, it points out like the weirdness of the consistently there's something consistent about Beatles horn sections, and it's can't quite put my finger on what it is. And continued into their solo years, but there's something about the Beatles horn section because this one, you could tell that they're trying to imitate a an American Memphis R&B thing, trying to do a real stack studio song. But you could definitely tell that this is a London horn section, and that they're trad jazz guys rather than R&B guys, and. There's something charming about the mismatch of the horns and what Paul wants them to be. And yet that hook he writes for them is so powerful that it feels like hard rock anyway. They sound, they have a little bit of a, like a movie soundtrack sound to them rather than an American R&B sound. Yeah, I've always felt that. It is interesting when you hear George Harrison's guitar playing the counter melodies, as you said, that in the recorded version, that in the final version are played by horns, it made me wonder, is it possible that George came up with those counter melodies and then they were given to horns? Or was George playing something that Paul gave him? I guess it would be interesting to know. Interesting. I can totally see George doing it. Let's go with the most flattering version to their collaboration. And also, it's a thing where the horn ref is the chorus. It's weird. The Beatles didn't have a lot of one-line choruses where it's just mm. the title of the song yelled. They usually like to show off a little more in their choruses. And so it's funny that this one is just like, title of the song, and then <laughs> horn hook or guitar hook when George is playing it. But I can imagine that coming out of George's head or Paul's head or their collective heads. The, a, a great song. Also, I have to say, this, my favorite line on the album is Paul saying, if I'm true, I'll never leave. But if I do, I know the way there. What a fantastic line. I love that. Wow, I never really thought about that before. That is so great. It reminds me, on the previous album, Rubber Soul, the equivalent would be Paul saying, I feel as though you ought to know that I've been good, as good as I can be. I feel as though you ought to know that I've been good, as good as I can be. And And this has that same kind of, same same sort of like sly double-edged humor to it. But I, to me, that's a quintessential Paul line. Paul was really like hitting new heights as a lyricist on this album, as they all were. Now, track 14 is Tomorrow Never Knows. Turn off your mind, relax and flow. 
Kind of an epochal, usually important song that, that was very scary for Don Draper when he listened to it. I it's, love that. What a great scene that is. $250,000 they paid for that scene. Uh, Money well very well it. spent. Yes, I love it. It says so much. Yes. Also, I love props to Megan Draper. Like the album just came out and she's already got the like 90s hipster contrarian. She's tomorrow never knows best song on the album. I can't imagine that was a, I, again, props to Megan Draper. She was ahead of her time in every way. It's also, it's wild to think it, the story of this song, just so fascinating. But the fact that this was the first song they did, like you said, the session's beginning April 6, 1966. And they jump right in with Tomorrow Never Knows. They didn't build up to the weird one. They were like, let's go for it on day one. And also Jeff Emmerich's first song as the Beatles' official engineer. So he also was thrown into it. Yeah. And, and he did a lot. He famously, not to repeat the well-known, but John said he wanted to hear his voice from the top of the mountaintop. Like he was the Dalai Lama. And uh, Jeff, if you believe his book, came up with the idea of putting John's voice through a Leslie speaker, rotating speaker, and it created that effect. John wanted to know if he could achieve the same thing by having him swing around on a rope <laughs> around a microphone, which was actually one of the less, it's not as crazy as the time when they were doing direct direct injection of the guitars, just plugging the guitar straight into the console. And John wanted to know whether he could do the same with his voice, which is my possibly my, my favorite technically ignorant thing that a musician ever said. And Jeff tried to explain you would need a plug in your throat. I guess I he was picturing that. something like the Matrix. I don't know. I don't know. This <laughs> is so hard to... <laughs> Imagine look, this is like Jeff Emmerich's first Beatles session and really his first big deal session. He's just a kid at this point. And... Yeah, talk about being thrown into the deep end, and he really rose to the occasion. And also, and he, he, this is the session where he stuffed a sweater into Ringo's drum. That combined with the compression he was using created the, the particular drum sound on this song. Yeah, it, it's kind of like the drum sound that Tony Visconti got on David Bowie's Low with the 70s digital gadget, the, the harmonizer, as Tony Visconti famously told Bowie, it fucks with the fabric of time. And to me, like, what Ringo's doing here is very much like the prototype of that astounding Bowie Visconti drug, drum sound. The take one version of Tomorrow Never Knows on this is extraordinary and pretty nightmarish. It's crazy that they were making a noise like that in 1966. It really is. Yeah. Without precedent, this is their first day back in the studio. <laughs> the last time they were in the studio, they were just dashing off Rubber Soul the night before it was due. And they needed two more songs to fill it out. So John came in with a Girl. Is there anybody going to listen to my story all about the girl who came to stay? And Paul came in with You Won't See Me. Pretty darn good for like night before the album is due material. And they were up all night doing those two songs and then they finished Wait as well. But that was the last time they were in a studio. And to go from that to Tomorrow Never Knows is just astounding. They went from, okay, like the album's due, we need two more songs, like just, and into, okay, we've got an album to make. We are not rushing this one. We are not thinking commercially. 
We're not thinking in terms of singles. We're just going to get as crazy as we can on day one. And it turns out they were, like you said, they already got this total nightmare sound. And we're building this song from tape loops in 1966. Yeah. (laughs) Which is also wild. And also interesting is that it was Paul who stayed up all night at home after they first started making a bunch of loops that they could then add to the finished song. So again, Paul fully invested in this John song. This is a song, and it's the perfect ending for Revolver and Beginning, just because all four of them are showing off. All four of them are doing things that are really unthinkable. They're, all four of them are outdoing what they've done before. All four of them are doing something totally new. Tomorrow Never Knows comes out in 19... 19- 66 30 years later the chemical brothers make it a hit all over again just with that fantastic setting sun featuring vocals from noel gallagher but it it's wild that they take these ringo breakbeats and they turn them into like total like apocalyptic 90s techno breakbeats but it's funny that this is still a cutting edge apocalyptic sound 30 years later and it's Ringo it's so funny how long it took me to learn what breakbeats really meant and Ringo can help you understand it it really is just taking what should be a simple beat like boom bap boom bap and breaking it and that's what Ringo did would play standard rhythm in the first half of a beat and then the second half would stutter step or whatever on the snare and that's a breakbeat that is what a breakbeat is, ladies and gentlemen. And I say that because if I didn't know for a long time, you might know either. That is really literally what a breakbeat is. It's breaking the beat. So that, there you go. And Ringo was a, an absolute master of that before anyone knew what a breakbeat was. But he did talk about breaking the beat, but he didn't say breakbeat. I love that. There's moments, uh, for me, it, it's an utterly transcendent recording and just truly freaky. I was talking about the take one, but the, the finished version still is just an utterly freaky, eerie, futuristic thing that this, this came from 1966, and we, which is what they were underscoring in that Mad Men scene. But it's, and I, I see actually it's interesting, I see all the best music criticism is in TikTok comments these days. People love to take a stance of the Beatles are overrated, and especially the, there are young people who love to do that. And there'll be other young people arguing with them, and they'll be telling them which Beatles songs to listen to. And a lot of times they'll say, listen to A Day in the Life, Listen to Tomorrow Never Knows. And as you pointed out, tape loops really new at this point. Uh, to the point where, you know, when Paul brought the tapes into the studio to use this tape loop, he had it in a shopping bag. Because, <laughs> like, just they weren't even on reels yet. It was a thing where, you know, just a lot of new ideas. You can hear that the Beatles took some time after Revolver that they actually took a break and thought about the songwriting and that... They're coming into the studio. The last time they were in a studio, they were worn out. They just wanted to get the thing done. You can hear that in their voices when they sing Girl and You Won't See Me, which are two of my favorites on Rubber Soul. And you can hear that these are men who haven't slept in a few days. And Revolver, they're so excited about this music that they're making. And you can hear that, that just that they begin with Tomorrow Never Knows. They're so excited about it. They're all throwing all these new ideas into it. They're all determined to do something to impress the others. Yeah, and it's important to understand that they had these tape loops and then they were sort of conducting them as overdubs to the song. That's where you're hearing like that, the, all the reverse guitars and the seagull sounding thing. That's all of them cueing that and then people were physically playing the loops in the studio. It's just, it, it's hard to picture, but that's what was happening. 
so we we made it through revolver the album let's just to round it out there were the single and b-side that were part of these sessions and this it's the a-side was paperback writer and the b-side was rain and paperback writer probably one of one of my top beatles songs just so punchy paul was very interested in getting his bass loud on it so that they did a crazy thing where they used an amplifier as a microphone to get the sound but just again we're talking about songs that define power pop for me i would say that if someone asked me what power pop was i'd probably play them paperback writer wow that's a great pick you're right paul's bass on this it's a very very busy recording on the bottom especially for 1966 it's just the way the bottom end jumps on it. But yeah, great song. I'm glad to get a good stereo mix of it finally, because that's another one that was pretty screwed up in the stereo mix all these years. Also, this one, it has what you were saying about the harmonies at the end of Good Day Sunshine. To me, this is just, uh, I think it's a superior song, but it's definitely like they use that as such a dynamic part of the song. The way the song stops periodically for these really complex layered harmonies that are very different tonally and emotionally from the rest of the song. What you were saying about where is Paul getting all this stuff and where is he at 23 getting this really very accurate depiction of a desperate freelance writer? (laughs) Where did that come from? You definitely get the feeling he met this person in in a club, easily imagined that this is something that Paul could have heard verbatim from somebody coming up to him at the Bag of Nails or someplace like that. But uh, it's... Definitely the desperation of it and also like the comedy of the desperation of it. Also, something I love just speaking as a 21st century media professional, I love that the guy's prototype of a really boring, safe, secure day job is working at a newspaper. His son (laughs) is working for your Daily Mail. It's a steady job. Working on a newspaper, kids. Like that was that was a boring, safe day job. It always yeah, it always struck me when he's saying, I can change around, I can make it longer, whatever you want is the exact opposite of where the Beatles were at, at, as artists at that point. So I, I always wonder whether it was a little bit about himself as well. That's fascinating. So that's Paul for you, that's Paul singing that line? Yeah, but it's it's about Paul it, it's Paul thinking about being a commercial songwriter. And then rejecting it. <laughs> it's just like that we're artists, we're going to do whatever we want. Like a little bit of that, maybe. A little bit. Like the difference between being a paperback hack writer and being the Beatles in 1966. It's an affectionate song. Honestly, like it, it's while this, this doesn't have a put down of the paperback writer, he's sympathetic to their pitch. He's not adding any sort of, any sort of jokes about this writer being bad or being dishonest or any of the satiric obvious things that he could have added to make it more of a put down he's really identifies with this character the part that has confused me since the day i first heard this song to this day is that it's a novel based on on another novel has always confused me and i feel like that line is a throwaway that he never fixed and what the fuck is he talking about that part just i feel like that part doesn't work maybe it's it's the novelization of the movie of the book that certainly (laughs) happened and in those days i'll go with that let's go with that but yeah it's funny it's based on a novel by a man named Larry. maybe it's it's an authorized sequel maybe it's like those science fiction writers who, who did after asimov died they did the foundation trilogy prequel trilogy just sort of 
in his honor. But yeah, it's a funny throwaway line. I spent an awful lot of my childhood wondering why the guy was named Lear. And that that too also bugged me. So finally, Rain. Speaking of Rain has always been, and I do love this song, but it's, it's always been a, like a real hipster choice of to be like, oh, that's actually my favorite Beatles song is Rain. Definitely always been that, that kind of favorite. Like you said, the song had a hipster mystique. A lot of that just down to Ringo. A lot of people, I think, interestingly, one of the most talked about outtake things on this box set is the fast version of Rain, even though it's instrumental. Honestly, it's like completely psychotic because for years people have heard this Ringo drum track and just marveled at it and wondered where the hell in the universe it came from. And Ringo is one of those people. Ringo has often said he has no idea how he played this drum track. It just came to him, as he famously said to Max Weinberg in his book on drumming, I know me and I know my playing and then there's rain. (laughs) And it's funny to think that all these years, people have marveled at Rain and what he's doing there and realizing that that was the slowed down version, that he was actually doing all that stuff a lot faster. And it's just hearing the fast version. And the first time I went through it, I was like, good Lord, like that take is just mind blowing. And it took me to the end of the take to realize, wait a minute, this is the version that we know. This is just how they played it originally. And that's the idea was to create the trippy sound was that they would record it fast and then slow, physically slow down the tape and then sing over that. Yeah. But we've got Ringo doing this. Honestly, that entire, that original whole track of rain at its original tempo is just, it's such a stunner. Well, there's a bunch of instrumental tracks in this album. Just a reminder, really good band, really good at playing their instruments. Very exciting band. Also, rain, has, it kind of epitomizes that revolver guitar sound that you were talking about at at, at the beginning with Taxman, that there's this specific sort of abrasive, really shiny, really flashy guitar sound that they got for this album that they weren't really interested in using again afterwards on any consistent level. But Rain is like just perfect guitar song. Would you have put this one on the album? For me, yes. For me, I wish it could have... I wish both Paperback Writer and it's like mostly just like with Strawberry Fields. Let me take you down cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Mostly I feel like the Beatles albums are unnaturally deprived of the singles because of that rule that they had. It it just, to me mentally, I usually slot them back in in some way. And I'm glad they're on this set. I guess it's weird because Paperback Writer is so poppy compared to i admit it has a different feel than a lot of the album and it would be hard to slot in rain fits in more naturally would paperback writer in fact be jarring if it was part of the album that's a good question would it would it seem out of whack songs it could have replaced dr robert for instance (laughs) were they the only ones who just would not put that the this idea that the single and the album were so separate were they the only ones who, who did that so consistently in the 60s? It was weird that they kept doing it because the original thing was value for money. They weren't going to ask anyone to pay twice for the same thing. But it's still, I mean, it's funny because Americans for many years grew up with Meet the Beatles, which is basically, it's 
with the Beatles, but it begins with I saw her standing there and it has I want to hold your hand on it. Oh yeah, I tell you something. I think you'll understand. And I Meet the Beatles is just a fantastic record and it's weird to think it would really suck to be to Honestly, it's weird to think of English fans buying these albums and, you know, I Want to Hold Your Hand isn't on the album. I just want to mention that the American versions of these records that Yesterday and Today, which is very much a companion piece to Revolver for American fans, because they took And Your Bird Can Sing off the album, and they took Dr. Robert off the album, and they took I'm Only Sleeping off the album, and they put them on this pastiche of songs that they'd shaved off other albums. So it begins with Drive My Car. It's got Nowhere Man on it. It's got If I Needed Someone. And it ends with Day Tripper. And it's like really a fantastic record. It's also got We Can Work It Out, which wasn't a Beatles, which they didn't put on an album. Day Tripper, they didn't put on an album. And it's just because Yesterday and Today is such a fantastic record that it isn't a record they assembled and the sound is nowhere near as good. But it's funny, that particular Beatles moment, it would have filled up another album if they had cared to assemble another album out of these pieces. Closing thoughts on the larger Revolver experience? It's just incredible because this is an album that nobody said wasn't being listened to closely enough. And it's funny that after this album, again, one of the most obsessively listened to, one of the most analyzed albums ever made and routinely hailed as the greatest album ever made and it's just it's funny that there's so much more to the story just in the grooves themselves than we even knew and the fact that we can still hear new surprises in this music i want them to i would actually love it if giles would put out the full stems the full broken down stems that he made from uh, separating the instruments, I would find that utterly fascinating. The odds of them doing that are very low, but I would, I, I think, I think people would, I would, I'm someone who listens to the, just the drums of Kid Charlemagne. So I would enjoy that just for <laughs> me. I, Giles, uh, please send me all the stems. <laughs> I want to remix I, it again. I think that like, even just one for an example, like Taxman again, like hearing every single drum and I'd heard all those drum beats before as part of, but like, Hearing them in this kind of isolated clarity, as Jal said, it was like handing someone a cake, and then an hour later they hand you back eggs and flour and milk, that they took the pieces of the cake and just gave you the individual components isolated. And I'm with you on the stems. I think that would be fantastic. What's the song on Revolver that you'd, you would most want to hear the stems for? That's interesting. Probably in your bird can sing, especially if he separated out the the guitars. If the stems can, if it can go that far, that would be amazing. Just to bring it full circle, I cannot believe they can do this. I cannot believe they can take a track that has multiple instruments on it, multiple voices, and then magically separate them out after it's already been combined. It, 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 that seems like it should be impossible, at least to do it perfectly. It doesn't surprise me usually that you can do it with, you know, and make it sound funky. But the fact that you can do it and make it sound perfect seems unearthly to me. I'm glad we live in a time of such miracles. <laughs> I hope they don't do this for Exile in, in Main Street. It does open the door to all sorts of unholy horrors. You, you could make a very clean and punchy ex, Exile in Main Street now. You could do all sorts of things. It also, it also would allow you to go back. You could go back and take a Robert Johnson recording and separate out his guitar and voice. You could do things that are cool and things that are horrible, and we're probably just seeing the 
a hint of what can be done with this technology. So that's, yes, some of them will be grotesque. (laughs) No doubt about it. Do you have a top three revolver? Ooh, a top three revolver. Just for fun. Yeah, and your bird can sing. Tomorrow never knows. I'm picking all John's songs. I'm sorry. That's interesting. If I had to, yeah, so without really overthinking it, I'd probably do Tomorrow Never Knows and Your Bird Can Sing. And either she said or I'm only sleeping. So I I just picked all the John songs. They're damn good. I think for me, it goes And Your Bird Can Sing, You're There and Everywhere. And I want to tell you. And I'm I'm not intentionally. Yeah, I want to tell you really is a sleeper. It's. Yeah, it's really nuts. It, every all the individual components of the song. It's also it's funny to get, this is one where you hear the outtakes and they're really just building up to the song. They don't have the song yet. They don't have the magic. But it, to me, like all the different, the really sullen, bitchy side of George that he flashes so wonderfully on on Taxman and Love You Too. Hearing him like get really vulnerable in this song, but in a really funny, self-deprecating way. And the way all the different elements, all again, all four Beatles are adding something just really distinctive and individual. You can pick them all out in the mix, but just just a fantastic hole. I do think it's a sleeper. It gives the lie to even what Paul said to George or about George around the time of Let It Be. They'd be like, until recently, your songs just weren't that good. <laughs> I guess the nice way to interpret that is be like, now I think they're good. Poor George. As so many things. Poor George. I'll make love to you if you want me to. <laughs> well, Rob, thank you so much for joining me on this adventure through Revolver. Hope everyone thank enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Rob Sheffield. I'll be back next week with another episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. And in the meantime, do subscribe to us. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and maybe leave us five stars on those platforms as well, because that is always deeply appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.